I have a question for you to start with. Is nostalgia a good or a bad thing? Just so we're clear what nostalgia is, it's a yearning for the return of past circumstances. One writer explains it like this, we ask and ask, but we cannot have again what once seemed ours forever. Do you ever feel that kind of longing for things that you once had? Maybe you long for the health that you once had. Maybe for a particular friend who has gone, a spouse who's not here anymore. Maybe you long for a way of life that's gone, your childhood or your school days or your working days. Maybe you look back to a time when you had influence in a particular way that has gone. Or maybe you look back to a time when you felt especially close to God and you feel like that has gone. Nostalgia can be a kind of homesickness. The poet A.E. Hausman wrote, That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. Or how about this from Tennyson? Tears. Idle tears. I know not what they mean. Tears from the depth of some divine despair rise in the heart and gather to the eyes in looking on the happy autumn fields and thinking of the days that are no more. Yearning for the return of past circumstances. That's what nostalgia is. But is it a good or a bad thing? Well, the answer is, it depends. Nostalgia can sink us or it can save us. When you and I realize that we can't go back, that realization can lead us into gloom. can cause us to give up. Nostalgia can sink us. But it can also save us. As Christians, when we find ourselves longing for what we've lost, we can let those memories remind us the best is still to come for us. Whatever we have lost, there is even better ahead of us. The pain of our loss might be very, very deep, but it reminds us there is an even deeper joy still to come. Well, what does this have to do with the book of Job? That is the book that we have been studying together. Well, in recent weeks, we've probably developed a particular picture of Job in our minds. And it's a pretty sad picture. In terms of material things, Job is a destitute man. He's sitting among ashes. And physically, he is a sight. The narrator of the book told us Job is afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And Job himself said, My body is clothed with worms and scabs. 
My skin is broken and festering. I'm nothing but skin and bones. And in terms of his status in society, Job has been stripped of his honor. His family find him to be loathsome. He says that when he appears, even the little boys scorn and ridicule him. His guests look on him as a stranger. And even his servant ignores him. Job is in a pathetic state. And as we look at him in that state, it's very easy for us to forget this is not how it used to be for Job. Chapter 1 told us he used to be the greatest man among all the people of the East. You might have forgotten that, but Job has not forgotten. In fact, the memory of what he used to be is a major part of his suffering. And in Job chapter 29, he shares his nostalgia for what he used to be. If you want to turn there in your Bible, you'll find it in page 530 or in the larger print Bibles, 818. Just to remind you where we are, we've reached a point in the book where the argument between Job and his three friends is finally over. It ended in chapter 27. And chapter 28 gave us a chance to pause for thought. The NIV gave it the heading of an interlude. And that chapter pointed us to the wisdom that's at the heart of the universe. It pointed us to the one who owns that wisdom. It belongs to God alone. And now in chapter 29, Job begins his final speech. Now he will say a few more sentences near the end of the book, but chapters 29 to 31 are his last major contribution to the book. When this final speech is over, the rest of the book is given over to two other speakers. First, a man called Elihu, and then finally, the words of God himself. But this morning, we're still listening to Job, so let's read Chapter 29. Job continued his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime. When God's intimate friendship blessed my house. When the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. When my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. The old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking. And covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed. And their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard me spoke well of me. And those who saw me commended me. Because I rescued the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had none to assist them. 
So the one, the one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I thought I shall die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water. And the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will not fade. The bow will be ever new in my hand. People listen to me expectantly. Waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers. They drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. This is God's word. It's often true, I think, that the good old days were not quite as good as you and I remember them. Those days had pressures and pains that we might have forgotten about. But for Job, it turns out, the good old days truly were good. Chapter 29 shows what chapter 1 meant when it called Job the greatest man among all the people of the East. But as we look at this, we'll see this chapter is not just here to teach us about nostalgia. This chapter is about nostalgia and destiny. Not just what has gone, but also what's to come. But the nostalgia comes first. Verse 2 makes it clear, Job yearns for what he has lost. How I long for the months gone by. One writer says that our longings reveal our heart. So what is on Job's heart? What does he long for most? The answer is he longs for close fellowship with God. Verse 2, again, how I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. As Job goes on in this chapter, he will get to the other blessings God gave him. But what Job misses most is the sense that God is his intimate friend. Now as readers of the book, we know God still is Job's friend. We know that God thinks there is no one on earth like Job. But Job has lost the sense of that friendship. God seems far, far away. In fact, Job feels that God is treating him as an enemy. We've seen that in previous chapters. 
And what Job longs for most is to feel God's smile again. And then he remembers the blessings that accompanied God's smile in the past. Verse 5, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. Having our path drenched with cream probably doesn't sound very appealing to us. It just sounds a bit slippery. But it's a way of talking about having plenty. Oil has the same idea. It was used as fuel in lamps and as a beauty treatment. It was precious for those reasons. And so today we might say, oh, for the days when I lived in clover, when I was prosperous, I felt good, I looked good, my cash flow was good, my family and I enjoyed each other's company, and we enjoyed the best food, drink, furniture, and gadgets. Now at this point, We might think Job is about to launch into stories about his luxury lifestyle. My days as the Richard Branson of the ancient world. But that is not what we get. As Job continues to tell us what he's nostalgic for, he doesn't mention the designer clothes or the cars or the yacht. He doesn't even mention the trips in the hot air balloon. He longs for the days when his life was a blessing to others. Verse 7. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young man saw me and stepped aside. The old man rose to their feet. The chief man refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. The gate of the city was the center of activity in the ancient world. That was where buying and selling happened. That was where deals and decisions were made. And that was the place where the leaders would gather. Job tells us he was one of those leaders. In fact, he was the most revered leader of all. He didn't have to fight his way through the crowds. Crowds parted for him. He didn't have to call for silence. His arrival brought silence. And it wasn't the kind of horrified silence he might get at this point in his life. This was a silence of sincere and deep respect. The elders stood when Job arrived. The way a courtroom stands when the judge arrived. People were awed by Job's presence. He was, after all, the greatest man among all the people of the East. And his greatness was seen not in his lavish lifestyle. That's not what filled people with awe. Job's true greatness was his commitment to blessing others with righteousness and justice. That becomes clear in the next verses. Verse 11. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commanded me because, 
I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Job's life was devoted to helping others. Especially those who had no one else to help them. The poor, the fatherless, the dying, the widow, the blind, the lame, the needy and the stranger. Meaning the foreigner. Job took up their case. He fought to get justice for them. And in the process, he was not afraid to attack those who were oppressing others. He speaks of the wicked as if they're wild animals prowling around society. Job was not afraid to break the fangs of people like that. To come down hard on them. So they'd drop their prey. So they'd quit devouring the vulnerable. No wonder people cleared a path for Job. No wonder they rose to their feet in his presence. This man had God's intimate friendship at the center of his life. And that overflowed in a life of blessing to others. Job longs for what he has lost. And what he has lost is not only intimacy with God, not only a position in society that enabled him to be a blessing, Job also longs for the hope that he's lost. Hope of unfading glory and strength. Verse 18 I thought, I shall die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water and the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will not fade. The bow will be ever new in my hand. Verse 18 says, I thought I shall die in my own house. Literally, in my own nest. Job isn't thinking so much of the grandeur of his house. He's thinking about the closeness of his family. He's saying, I thought I'd die in my own familiar place with family and friends around me. And I thought it would be at a good old age. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. And then Job uses an image that's very significant in the Old Testament. The image of a well-watered, flourishing tree. Psalm 1 says, The righteous person will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. The prophet Jeremiah says, The one who trusts in the Lord will be like a tree planted by the water, that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. That's what the righteous can expect. That's what those who trust in the Lord can expect. So Job expected it for years and years to come. He expected a life, verse 20, where his glory would not fade. 
where the bow would be ever new in his hand. The bow, obviously, is a weapon. It's a symbol of strength and effective power. Job hoped that his strength and power would be ever new. And now he is filled with nostalgia for those days of hope. And finally, as Job looks back, he longs for a rain that brings comfort and life. Verse 21. People listen to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. Job's mind here has gone back to the city gate where the leaders gathered. And now we can see even more clearly than before, Job wasn't just one of the leaders. He was foremost among the leaders. He sat as their chief, as a king among his troops. And Job's leadership was life-giving, like showers. His words were like the spring rain. One writer says, just as the spring rains ensured the crops would mature to life-giving harvest, so Job's wise counsel and just judgments brought life to his society. So now we know what chapter 1 meant when it called Job the greatest man among all the people of the East. But can we learn anything else from this passage? That's the question. Well, as we've gone through this, we'll all have noticed that Job's nostalgia is not quite like our nostalgia. For Job, the good old days truly were the good old days. His past circumstances were as good as it gets. He lived in close fellowship with God. And he had the icing on the cake as well. He lived in clover. And because of his good leadership, he was respected by both the high and the low in society. And so the point is, Job is an extreme case. Much of this book concentrates on his extreme suffering. But here, the focus is on the extreme blessedness and effectiveness of his former days. Job's lows and his highs are probably beyond what any of us are going to experience. And that flags up to us one of the purposes of Job's life. Why did God give Job the life that he gave him? Well, it wasn't just so that you and I can identify with Job and learn from his experience. Of course, we can do that in a lot of ways. But Job is not quite like you or me. 
God gave Job the life that he gave him in order to point you and me beyond Job. And so in this chapter, as we hear Job's nostalgia for close fellowship with God, for blessing others with righteousness and justice, for hope of unfading glory and strength, and for a reign that brings comfort and life, as you and I listen to that, it's here to provoke some nostalgia in us. Not so much nostalgia for our own past experience, Now this is here to provoke nostalgia for the past experience of the human race. Nostalgia for the things that humanity has lost. What has humanity lost? Well, what do we find at the very start of the Bible? In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find a man and a woman living in the closest possible fellowship with God. We're told that God created a garden where he walked with the man and woman. The man and woman were to work the garden and take care of it. They were to rule over God's creation. They were to be God's representatives in God's world. And as they did that, They had access to the tree of life. Their glory and their strength would not fade. Adam and Eve had great dignity and great purpose. They were blessed beyond measure. Their path was drenched with cream. But they sinned. And when they did, those circumstances became a thing of the past. They were lost. You and I do not live in that world anymore. The world we live in today is described in Genesis chapter 3. And if you were to read that chapter, you would notice that the word pain comes up a whole lot of times. The world you and I live in is broken. This is a world of loss. That's why there's such a thing as nostalgia. That's why you and I cannot hold on to good times. That's why we cannot make good experiences last. Because the world of Genesis 1 and 2 has been lost. In recent weeks we've seen Job's suffering from a lot of different angles. And here's another truth about his suffering. Job is vulnerable to suffering because he lives in a world that's broken. That's why you and I are vulnerable to suffering too. That's why you and I cannot escape loss. Sooner or later, we will find ourselves longing and yearning for something good that has gone. And so as we look at Job's loss, as we experience loss ourselves, it is right that we feel some nostalgia. Not just for what we've lost personally, but for what humanity has lost. It's good for us to realize 
This world is not the way it's supposed to be. I saw earlier, Tennyson wrote about tears rising in his heart when he thought of the days that are no more. There's nothing unhealthy about those kind of tears. They're not idle tears. They remind us something's wrong with the world. When we lose our job, or our health, or a loved one, we are being reminded of what this world has lost. It's not a bad thing when we cry over what's been lost. But that nostalgia can either sink us or save us. If we keep looking back, then we will sink. We will drown in despair. But our nostalgia can be put to good use. It will save us if we let, us, let it drive us on to long for a return of what has been lost. In fact, if we read through the Old Testament, we find that it is full of those kind of longings. It's full of homesickness for paradise. For a place where fellowship with God is unhindered, where righteousness and justice rule, where glory and strength do not fade. And as Israel's situation gets worse, the longings only increase. And God feeds those longings with promises of recreation. Through Isaiah, God says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Why? Because great as those former things were, they were only shadows of what's to come. In the New Jerusalem, God says, the sound of weeping and crying will not be heard. As the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. That is what Job longed for, to be like a flourishing tree. God promised that would be a future reality for his people. Through Isaiah, God said, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. No more predators and prey. No more fangs of the wicked. No more victims needing rescue. No one will be needy. No one will be a stranger or feel like a stranger. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. How would those Old Testament longings be fulfilled? Well, it would be through a man who lost even greater glory than Job did. Who suffered in even greater ways than Job did. God the Son, we're told, did not grasp on to the glory of heaven. He left heaven to come into a world of suffering. And he suffered all the way to death on a cross. Jesus Christ went through loss in order to restore what this world has lost. He came to establish a reign that brings comfort and life. 
We've seen in this chapter how Job ministered to people. He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. He was a father to the needy. This is how Jesus described his own ministry. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And Jesus also explained that that ministry was only a foretaste of what was to come. When Jesus returns to bring God's new heaven and earth. And the New Testament tells us God's people are not going to be passive spectators in all of this. Those who belong to Christ will share in his future reign. It is not a bad thing to think about what we've lost. To feel the pain of the days that are no more. Whether it was days of health or effectiveness or closeness with someone who's gone. But when you and I feel that nostalgia, we must not allow, us, allow it to sink us in hopelessness. Let's allow it to drive us to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 until we become homesick. Not just for what we've lost as individuals, but for what humanity has lost. The experience of seeing God face to face. The glory and strength of serving Him in bodies that aren't decaying. The joy of living and working in a kingdom of true righteousness and justice where relationships don't fray and break and end. Nostalgia can be healthy if we turn it into homesickness for that lost world. It's healthy because it makes us treasure God's promises of a future when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When we will inherit God's new heaven and earth. And we will serve him then in new resurrection bodies. Full of unfading glory and strength. If you are in Christ, if you are living with him as your Lord, that is what is ahead for you. That is your God-given destiny. Here and now we will all experience loss. Then we will only know gain. And the greatest gain will be perfect, unhindered fellowship with God. So in our times of nostalgia, and we all have them, in those times let's pray, Come Lord Jesus. Let's remember we have future glory ahead of us. And so we can live and serve with hope. Even in the midst of great loss, we know that our loss is not final. It's appropriate that we respond by both 
remembering and looking forward. And so we're going to sing, first of all,